the American identity begins when Benjamin Franklin knit the American colonies together. Franklin is endlessly interesting. Printer, scientist, revolutionary. He is the only founding father who evidently had a sense of humor. From the WNET Group in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart, and this is WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our content. Our guest today is Walter Isaacson, historian, journalist, and author of the widely acclaimed biography, Benjamin Franklin and American Life. Walter also serves as creative consultant for Ken Burns' upcoming four-hour film on the life of Franklin which is premiering soon on PBS. He's joining us from New Orleans, where he's currently also serving on the faculty of Tulane University. Walter, welcome to WNAT Up Next. It's great to be with you. Wonderful podcast you have. Thank you. Well, first, what was it about Benjamin Franklin that inspired you to write about him? I love the fact that when I looked at his broad range of interests, I saw how he could feel nature rippling across different things. In other words, he was the best artist, anatomist, writer. He loved music and math. And by being a Renaissance man, he was able to do things like apply the scientific method of Newton to things like how do you create a constitution of the United States? So to me, just being interested in everything made him the quintessential curious American. You seem to like writing about what I would call geniuses, Franklin, Steve Jobs, Einstein, Da Vinci, lately Jennifer Doudna, the gene editor. Is there a common thread among them all? Yes, the main thread is curiosity, pure curiosity for its own sake. In other words, not curiosity to try to prove an ideological point you have or to even try to make something that'll make you money, but just because you love the beauties of nature. I mean, as a little kid runaway and then as a teenager sailing to england franklin used to drop barrels into the waters of the atlantic ocean and measure the temperature just to see what it was like and then eventually he's able to chart and discover the gulf stream likewise when jennifer doudna was interested in how bacteria seem to have these repeated sequences in their genetic code she did that out of curiosity, but soon we have messenger RNA vaccines, we have gene editing tools. So I think whether it's Leonardo da Vinci who wanted to know everything you could possibly know about everything knowable, to Ben Franklin who was that way, and even to Einstein who when he got stumped on his equations of general relativity would pull out his violin and play Mozart because it reconnected him with the harmony of the spheres. People who are interested in a broad array of interests tend to be able to see patterns across nature. And you've spoken, I know, in the past about a relationship between the arts and sciences and how that is a nexus for creativity. You see that in Steve Jobs. Every time he introduced a product in the early 2000s, whether it was the iPod or the iPad or the iPhone, the presentation would end with a slide showing two street signs that intersected. And it would be the liberal arts and technology, how the liberal arts and humanities intersect with technology and science. And he'd say that's where Apple's heart is. And it made products that were beautiful, not just very good electronics, but that people love to touch and to feel. 
And when I finished that book and was finishing it up and talking to him in the last year of his life, he said to me, you have to do Leonardo da Vinci because Vitruvian Man, that guy doing jumping jacks in the circle in the square, he said, that's the symbol of the connection of arts and sciences and of spirituality. And to me, we have to celebrate that because that's what sets Apple apart, but it's what set all creative people apart. Walter, tell us a little bit about your collaboration with Ken Burns on this film and exactly what is a creative consultant? Well, I had dinner with Ken Burns and we had a great dinner and I said, you got to do Ben Franklin. Now, partly it was because I was looking at creativity, but partly I was looking at what happened was happening in America, which mm-hmm. is this poisonous political divide we have now where people have knee jerk reactions to any issue without looking at the facts. And Benjamin Franklin was the founder who brought people together better than any other. There was Jefferson and Madison, who were like the smartest of the founders, and Samuel Adams and John Adams, who were the most passionate, and George Washington, a man of great rectitude. But Franklin could always sort of cool people off under the mulberry tree in his backyard in Philadelphia and find the balance that would get it right. I felt we had lost that in America with the poisonous political atmosphere we had. We should be celebrating somebody who applies the scientific method to policy, but also knows that we both have, all sides have to give up some of their demands in order to have a democracy. Of the Founding Fathers, you described him as approachable. (laughs) Yeah. You know, he's not like made of marble on some uh, pedestal. He's real flesh and blood. You can imagine showing him your new iPhone and him being curious about it and him telling you about some invention he made, like the one that could take books off of a shelf and turn the pages. There was a story in the Constitutional Convention where one of the delegates bet another that they'd be afraid to walk up to Washington and slap him on the back. Mm -hmm. The delegate did it, and then Washington was so cold, he said, not for money will I ever do that again. Ben Franklin was the one who was always approachable. And I think it led to a form of American humor and aw shucks, cracker barrel humor. It led to a casual style of writing, but it also led to those balances and trade-offs and respect for other people that are essential to a democracy. Do you feel that history has portrayed him accurately over the years? No, the last chapter in my book is a survey of how he's treated over the past 200 and some odd years. There are periods in which he's revered, usually periods like the Great Depression or times when we had great divisiveness in our society. There are other times, like in the Gilded Age of the late 1800s, where people sort of scoff at him for being a penny saved as a penny earned type, hardworking middle-class person. I think the times we live in today are like those troubled times we've had in the past, where just a down-to-earth healer, somebody who can unify us, is somebody we like. But it's important, whether we're looking at any historical figure, whether it be the founders like Jefferson, Washington, and Franklin, or whether it be people of the, you know, Eisenhower and Truman, to see how they wax and wane in history depending on the needs of the current time. His achievements are so many and varied, as you say, the wit, the humor, as a printer, and really more than a printer, a writer, a publisher, a scientist, diplomat, politician, statesman, 
if we had to narrow it down, mm -hmm. what would be his greatest contribution? Well, if you asked him, if you asked him what he wanted to put on his gravestone, if you asked the way he signed his name, even when he was an ambassador in Paris or the most famous American in the world, he always wrote B. Franklin, comma, printer. And I think he liked to be considered somebody who not just was a publisher and printer, but somebody who was a middle class. He called it we the middling people, a shopkeeper, somebody who actually produced products like almanacs and books or newspapers. And he believed that communications was what would tie us together. So I'll let him have the answer to that one, which is B. Franklin, comma, printer. Okay. Do you think there's been a tendency to oversimplify Franklin and his contributions? Absolutely. There's certain times during history, whether it be when he was being criticized as being too petty of a penny saved as a penny earned guy in the Gilded Age of the 1880s or in the Romantic period of the 1820s, he simplified too much as if we confuse him a little bit with that character of himself in the autobiography carrying three puffy rolls up the street and rolling his printer's paper. I think he created that middle-class character, but he was more complex than that. You speak often of his sense of practicality of what we can do to improve some sort of a situation. He always asked what works. And one of the things you see in all of his notebooks is a phrase, let the experiments be made. And it was because he embraced the enlightenment of the scientific method of the time. For example, he noticed how sparks of electricity in sort of these fun shows that people were doing with batteries and electricity that he helped invent, how they resembled lightning bolts. And he said, maybe lightning bolts are just sparks of electricity. And at the bottom of his notebook page, he says, let the experiment be made. Likewise, He's wondering whether welfare payments are something that helps create a stable population or provides too much of a disincentive to work. And he says it's not all one or the other. Maybe at a certain point, welfare becomes a disincentive to work. And he writes, let the experiment be made. And he looks at the welfare laws around England and the, and the colonies to see where they work and where they don't that open-mindedness of saying, let's see if we can gather the facts before we come to an opinion, and then we'll be able to be practical and pragmatic. In screening the film and in reading your book, I got the sense that Franklin almost was an early media baron. Yes. I was thinking about his sphere of influence in the colonies. It's almost like he had a chain of printing establishments up and down the coast as well as his role as postmaster. It gave him great knowledge, I believe. Yeah, it helped tie together the colonies. It used to be if he was sending a letter from Virginia to Massachusetts, the British postal system would take it to England first. So the post road he does ties together the colony. Secondly, it helps spread useful information, as he said. But thirdly, and this is sort of the fun point, is that it does make him a media baron somewhat like, you know, the Ted Turner's and John Malone's and Murdoch's of today, because what he does is he has his print shop. But then he decides, OK, I'll have to have newspapers and a publishing house with books and I'll franchise them up and down the coast of America. And then I'm going to help create the colonial postal system 
so that my newspapers and books can get disseminated. And when he had control of the postal system for a short while, he said, my content gets preference. What does that sound like? It sounds like when you're dealing with a cable company and they say, Mm -hmm. all right, you know, we're going to own some of the content and give it preference. But then he decided it should be open, the postal system, but it allowed him to franchise his publishing houses and his newspapers up and down the coast of America and to make sure he got good carriage in the postal system. In terms of the revolution, I know he's been described as a somewhat reluctant revolutionary. He held on to his identity as a Briton for a very long time and had a long time sense of loyalty to the crown. What really was the point where that pivoted? Yeah, what we have is up until 1774, 1775, he's in London. He's our agent, meaning, you know, our ambassador in ways of many of the colonies to Parliament to try to solve this situation. He says the British Empire is like a fine noble vase. If we break it, we'll never be able to put it back together. And so he's very much dedicated to keeping the British Empire together. But in the early 1770s, he starts getting humiliated in Parliament. There's all sorts of problems that arise, like some letters that he publicized that gets him in trouble. And so they bring him to what's called the cockpit and they berate him. He's wearing sort of this leather coat of a common person from America. He just stands there and he takes it. And at a certain point, he realizes that the English and the British Parliament are not going to ever give respect to Americans and the colonies and allow them to do their own taxation. So he sails back to America. And when he returns in 1775, people are waiting to say, which side will Franklin be on? Because in 1775, our nation was split. And Franklin finally declares that he's on the side of independence. Going ahead to the Constitutional Convention, we learn about the three-fifths compromise and how that played out. What was his role in the acceptance of that compromise? And, And why do you think some consider it to be the great origination sin of the USA? Slavery itself and the embedding of slavery into the Constitution is indeed the great original sin of America. And Franklin was in many ways a compromise. He kept trying to bring people together. That's sort of the downside of always trying to find common ground and compromise is that sometimes you make compromises on moral things where you shouldn't. And so at the Constitutional Convention, his main role is not in the three-fifths clause. He's not involved in that one, but he's involved in the compromise of the big states versus little states, whether you have a proportional representation like the House of Representatives or equal votes per state like the Senate. And he says, let's have a House and a Senate. And he said, when we were young tradesmen in Philadelphia and we had a joint of wood that wouldn't fit together, you'd take from one side and shave from the other until it held together for centuries. And we here at this convention must each part with some of our demands if we're going to have a democracy that will hold together. And so he made the compromises and he told people to vote for the Constitution even with all of its compromises. The interesting thing about Franklin is that he reflects the arc of American history because after the Constitutional Convention, he starts reflecting more 
on the fact that he compromised on slavery, that he had owned two slaves when he was a young tradesman and they worked in his shop, that he allowed advertising about slavery in his newspaper. And he says, we all make errors in our life. The important thing is to learn from them. And he had a ledger where how did he correct his errors? And so at the end of his life in his 80s, he becomes president of the society for the abolition of slavery because he knew that he had made a moral mistake by compromising and allowing compromises on that issue. So there was a great sense of evolution from his own Yeah, but there's a great sense of evolution in American history. And sometimes we get all wrapped up trying to figure out, should we dismiss all the founders or should we praise all the founders? It's we have to say who in history helped the evolution to our nation becoming a more perfect union, who helped the evolution to being more and more inclusive. All of us in our lives have gotten things wrong, whether it be on gay marriage, and maybe we get things wrong that people in the future will judge us, like eating meat or driving internal combustion engine cars. We know that we make mistakes. The important thing is to be more like Ben Franklin and for America to be more like Ben Franklin and say, all right, I made a mistake here. I've got to find a way to rectify it. And that's the arc of American history when we do it right. And it's the real sin of American history when we don't reflect on where we got things wrong. His personal life is very fascinating. His family life, his relationship with his son, his relationship with his wife. You almost, with his wife, you have a sense of him abandoning her to live in England and Mm -hmm. set up an alternative family there. Then with his son, William, very, very close when they were young, when William was young, rather. But then politics got in the way of that relationship. Could you reflect on that? Very, very complex. Yeah, yeah. You know, my wife points out that all the people I've written about, Albert Einstein had a horrible marriage, abandoned one of his children. Steve Jobs had a child born out of wedlock, complex relationship. Ben Franklin has a child born out of wedlock that becomes William Franklin, the person you talked about who has a falling out with at the end. A lot of people I've written about, my wife says, why do you keep writing about people who are that way? I said, well, they're flesh and blood, they're human, and they have their flaws as well as their strengths. Franklin, complex relationship with his family, Deborah Franklin, his common-law wife, she had gotten married before, had been abandoned, and so he entered into a common-law marriage, which is the only way you could do it legally then, and she never liked to travel. As far as I could tell in my research, she never left Philadelphia and may never have spent a night more than a block away from Market Street in Philadelphia. He loved to travel up and down the coast of America to create the postal system, to England to be our envoy there, and then to France. And they worked out a relationship where she stayed at home. He traveled. And some people blame her for saying, why didn't you support your husband? I think it's more he should have spent more time back in Philadelphia because that's where Deborah wanted to be. But all marriages are a bit of a dark forest. They got along they to the very end, but then he's not there when she dies because he's in England trying to work out the saving of the British Empire. And of course, his flirtations with much younger women are often written about. Yes, uh, I think they're only flirtations and they're after Deborah dies. He does 
have a household in a way. It's a rooming house in London where he almost recreates his family. There's a woman of appropriate age, Mrs. Stevenson, who is his landlord. Many people have written about this. Stacey Schiff is a good one who try to delve into those relationships. But as far as we can tell, they were mainly, they were totally flirtatious relationships, but not romantic relationships. He almost becomes a father figure, I think, too. Yeah, to a couple of the people. Katie Ray is one, and uh, likewise, Mrs. Stevenson's daughter, Polly, and they're all friends of his through the rest of his life. The more complex relationship is with his son, William, the one who I said was born out of wedlock, Mm -hmm. because he dotes on William. He raises William even though William's mother is no longer around. And Ben Franklin raises William. They go to England together. But William becomes very enamored with the aristocracy and the royalty and loyal to the crown, becomes royal governor of New Jersey. And when Ben Franklin comes back in 1775, they have a very deep falling out because Benjamin Franklin joins the side of revolution and William Franklin stays loyal to the crown. And they barely speak after that. And William Franklin was actually jailed. Franklin allowed General Washington's troops when they conquered parts of New Jersey to jail William Franklin. He ends up being sent back to England. And more complicated, William Franklin has a son born out of wedlock named Temple. And that's Benjamin Franklin's grandson, of course. And Temple Franklin has to make a choice. And Temple Franklin decides to move in with his grandfather. He sides with Benjamin Franklin in this. And so young Temple, the grandson, is alienated from William, his father. What do you feel makes him so relevant for us today? I think we're in a period of divisiveness and poison uh, where we don't say, hey, let's look at the fact. We don't even try to share a common pool of facts. And instead, we look at things through an ideological lens. I think he's the founding father who really tries to be the one who unites us, who cools people's passions and brings them together. Even in his communications work, his printing work, he did not have a partisan newspaper. There were about 12 newspapers in Philadelphia, and some were for the proprietors, some were for the royalists. But he tries to have a common sense almanac, newspaper, books that he publishes. And I think we need that today, somebody who can drain some of the poison out of our politics and do it with a sense of humor. And as I said, he kind of invented a form of American humor that you see him later in Will Rogers or Mark Twain, Mm -hmm. which is the sort of aw shocks, middle class, I can't figure out the pretensions of the elite that well, but let me just tell you what makes common sense. And that was the Franklin that then, and that's the type of people we need today. Well, we are looking forward to April 4th and 5th when Ken Burns' film will be on. But Walter, I want to ask you about your other lives, which you seem to have quite a few. <laughs> your other public media role is as a contributor to Amanpour and Company, which has seen weeknights on PBS. I find that Amanpour and Company, like most things on PBS and most things produced by WNET, are the things where we find the common ground, we start respecting other people. And so I've known Christian Amanpour since we all worked at CNN together in a previous century. And, you know, she's one of the greats of world journalism. And so when they asked 
whether I would be one of the co-hosts in Amanpour and Company, it gives me an opportunity to interview people, whether they be scientists or medical experts who really understand, say, coronavirus or gene editing, or whether they be historians who truly understand the nature of Russia and Ukraine and the factors that go into great power politics to be able to have significant, serious conversations that can run 15, 20 minutes. That's the advantage of what we do in public media. Teaching career. Tulane is in New Orleans. You are a native of New Orleans, and you are now on the faculty. Tell me about that. One thing in life you learn is that it's sometimes good to go home. It's sometimes good to be spending your time with people who were in grade school with you and can poke fun at your own pretensions the way Ben Franklin liked to do with his friends. But also you give back to a community. If we're going to repair America, it's not going to be top down. It's going to be bottom up. It's going to be communities like New Orleans and the hundreds of other places from Memphis to Chattanooga to Austin to Columbus that I go travel in and see where good things are happening at a local level. I also love teaching. I mean, my students in Tulane, I learned more from them than they learned from me, but it's so energizing. I was teaching my course in the digital revolution, and we were figuring out how the decentralized nature of the internet has helped shape politics, including Ukraine. Coming back home, I've been living in the French Quarter on St. Charles Avenue now, within 20 blocks of where I went to high school, within 20 blocks of where my family home is, and I grew up, and within 20 blocks of Tulane. So to me, it's recharging my batteries. I guess Franklin would use a analogy from biology. It's sort of replenishing my roots. I also have heard that you're working on a new biography of Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk is somebody, we look at great innovators, but sometimes they're doing things like inventing 140 characters. You can tweet at each other. The difficult innovations today are the ones that are most important to the sustainability of human life on this planet, which is energy, a sustainable source of energy. I think electric cars, which are extraordinarily difficult to do. I think space travel, creating neural implants so that we can have human machine connections as opposed to artificial intelligence that gets out of our control. Elon Musk has been at the forefront of each of these. He's a strong cup of tea, whether you work for him or follow his Twitter feed, he can cause people to clap their arms a bit, but I'm trying to understand the roots of his passion and creativity. And look, we just went through storms in the Northeast. We've had some in Texas, had some in New Orleans. The notion that I can have a Starlink satellite that allows me direct access to the internet without having to be on a grid, that I can have a battery power pack so that if the electricity goes down, I can have an electric car These type of things will make life on this planet better, but they're difficult to do. They're not just digital inventions. They're things that are in the physical world that involve real engineering. So I'm trying to figure out how does he do it? And I'm thinking as I'm sitting here, the battery, Benjamin Franklin to Elon Musk. Benjamin Franklin to Elon Musk. We've talked about that. There's Benjamin Franklin and he invents the word battery when he puts together a bunch of Leyden jars into a box and charges them all up. Well, exactly what Elon Musk is now doing with lithium ion batteries and putting them into a battery pack and putting them in cereal so that we can run electric cars. 
Benjamin Franklin left a legacy to Philadelphia and Boston that's still around. It's a fund of incent innovation. And one of the teams that won it from West Philadelphia, a poor neighborhood, was somebody who created a battery electric powered car. And so it made me think of Benjamin Franklin's legacy is expressed now in people like that and people like Elon Musk who are saying, yeah, we can make electric cars even though it's hard. Walter, it's just been so terrific to talk to you. I could go on all day, and I know you don't have all day, <laughs> but it's a great pleasure to I have to all day you. for uh, WNET. It's a great station and a great system, and it's, it's my honor in life to be connected with you all. Our guest, Walter Isaacson, historian, author, journalist, would-be scientist, I think. <laughs> yeah, I wish I'd taken that path. The creative consultant for Ken Burns' upcoming four-hour film on Benjamin Franklin, which is premiering April 4th on PBS, two successive nights, April 4th and 5th. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Hey, great to be with you. And special thanks go out to Jordan Lawrence of DKC, to our audio engineer, Josh Broom, our executive producer and editor, Dana McBride. Thank you for listening, and be sure to be with us again for another edition of WNET Up Next. You can share your questions and comments with us at upnext at WNET.org, and of course, do become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design On Air Promotion, Fundraising, and Traffic Department of the WNET Group. I'm Tom Stewart.